Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Matthew Zachary. He's the founder of Stupid Cancer. Uh, he's a 25-year brain cancer survivor, and he founded a breaking, groundbreaking nonprofit called Stupid Cancer. Uh, he's a creator of the world's first podcast that uh, gives a voice to millions, and he knows, obviously, firsthand about the uh, Healthcare and the current conversations about it uh, maybe are limited or stymied by political correctness and, and other issues. But uh, we're going to talk about his journey and, and what he's doing now. So, Matt, thanks for coming. A pleasure to be here. Yeah, if you would, you know, I know you've recounted this probably millions of times, but tell me about uh, what happened to you long ago and what's your journey been like to this point? Yeah, the, the Dime Store tour is that I was a classically trained uh, concert pianist and film composer going into undergraduate. And by the time I was about to graduate and go off to film school to be a film composer, I had a uh, diagnosed with terminal brain cancer. Always fun. And my, my symptom was, among many, that I lost fine motor coordination in my left hand. And for those who know anything about playing piano, you need fine motor coordination to play the piano. So that kind of ruined all of that. And spoiler alert, still here, but didn't get to go down that route and plan B became plan A, which was I was a Macintosh tinkerer in my teens and 20s. So I fixed Macintoshes in Manhattan through the 90s. And that was how I built my, uh, my backup career. That, that turned into a decade in advertising and marketing. And then I got sucked into the world of what they call patient advocacy by meeting people who also had cancer in their 20s and who I finally felt uh, were kind of a tribe that I wished I had when I was sick. So that so was. How did you? Uh, how did you deal with the terminal diagnosis? And how did you not just give in and say, "All right, I'll do traditional treatments"? Like, what was that part of it like? Well, I mean, this was the '90s where, like, you kind of just did stuff and you hope for the best. And I just think my natural—I don't know—naivete. When you're 21, you're just supposed to be invincible. It didn't didn't really sink in that I was going to die. And I think that was just a good natural thing to feel. My parents, of course, were terrified and my family and friends went, went absolutely crazy, clearly. But I never really thought it was going to be anything, again, out of that invincibility complex. And, you know, they talk about facing mortality when you're very young. I, I, I just never felt that way until, of course, I was cured. And then I realized, well, now what? And then I think the scariest day when I finally felt mortal was when everything was over. So I just happened to be, I don't know, of a gumption that I didn't think this would get in my way until it was over. And then I was terrified. You were scared more when it was over? Why? I think when you're going through a crisis and you have support and you have anchors and handrails and guardrails, on the day it's over, those all vanish. So everything that was propping you up while things were terrifying, are gone. And it's, it's pretty common to say the last day of anything is the scariest. So it's like, I don't know, you had cancer, you're inside a building, they, they 
put you out the back door and now you're standing there and you're like, now what do I do? Is that what you mean? Yeah. There's no what's next when they say you're cured. At least there wasn't back in the 1990s. Hmm, okay. So what, what, um, what did you do? If you don't mind, what, uh, you know, what caused the remission? Do you think? That's not an easy question to answer. And a lot of it goes back to a book that I read in the 1990s by the, by uh, Dr. Bernie Siegel, which was called Love, Medicine, and Miracle. And you can self-interpret what those three things mean to you as an individual. But I had support. My mental health was as good as possible before that was the thing we cared about. I had the right doctors, apparently, made the right decisions, apparently, around treatment and surgery. And, you know, luck of the Irish. And I'm Jewish, so I'm still here. And how many years ago was this? It'll be 25 years this coming January, 2021. So knowing the stats, were you very lucky or, I mean, how, how deadly was the type of cancer that you had? I'm the luckiest bastard on the planet and the longest living person with this cancer. Wow. Okay. So you were going through your background. Uh, keep going. You were in advertising for many years. Then what happened? Yeah. So then I met someone who else, someone else who had cancer in their twenties. I'd gone so long thinking I was the only one, you know, your grandma dies, your dog dies, a kid dies. They're all terrible, but I wasn't either of them. I was, a, I was a college student. Would have been nice to know other college students that had cancer just for that, uh, not feeling judged or having someone like you. And it took me a long time to find that person. And once I did, it changed my life. And it gave me a different perspective on what I can do besides advertising and selling Doritos to teenagers. So what did you do then? How did you start the stupid cancer nonprofit? I I had a lot of questions. And when you're a marketer, you come with lots of questions. And and these were normal, like what's the audience? What's the product? What do we need? What's not working? And I I just found a spot that resonated. This white space in cancer in the mid-2000s, everything back then was uh, pink ribbons and Livestrong and Hallmark cards and you poor thing and the pity party and old people and babies. And I'm a Gen Xer, proud Gen Xer, 46, born in 74. And there was nothing speaking to me as far as what I wished would have been nice when I was sick. So I basically built the brand and I built the community that I wish that I had that really did resonate with largely, it was a very ageist thing that I did, but I want, I didn't want to start a charity to, to raise money for research. I didn't want to start a charity to do all. I wanted to start a community. It just happened to be a nonprofit, but stupid cancer was just the name that came to me. I think it resonates with anyone that knows what Homer Simpson would say if they got cancer. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, stupid cancer. Right. Just picture Dan Castellaneta saying that out loud. And that was the stroke of genius. Literally, it was just to put together this community that served a real niche purpose at the right time. This was before the internet. This was before iPhones and Android and basically Friendster and Napster. So the life before how we take things for granted today digitally didn't exist. It was a huge white space to be first to market. Yeah, I remember. So what... um Again, what is the goal and the mission of Stupid Cancer? It's community support or what is it? Yeah, the mission of Stupid Cancer was to essentially give a community to young adults facing cancer. And that cancer isn't so much fun when you're a kid or old either, but it's just very different when you're not a kid or very old. And it's a point of your life where you're supposed to be taking 10 steps forward every day, but cancer comes in and you're taking 10 steps back every day. Failure to thrive, dating, insurance, fertility, 
uh, stress and anxiety, um, family planning, keeping your career, going back to school, just having a social life, all these things get interrupted and disrupted in your teens and 20s. And it's hard enough to be in your teens and 20s when you're well anyway. So Stupid Cancer's mission was basically to be the voice of adolescent and young adult cancer, provide advocacy, research, and support to advance the cure and basically the dignity of living with, through, and beyond cancer as a young adult. Yeah, I remember a friend had Hodgkin's lymphoma in college, and I don't know what I was thinking back when I was in my early 20s and a teen, but I didn't know much about cancer. I was like, oh, it's just a thing, this thing some people get. And, you know, I, I can't imagine that people your age and your teens and your 20s are even capable of being supportive. They just don't have the life experience, and they just, I don't know, they feel probably invincible, and so they just can't appreciate what, what's wrong with you, you know? Yeah, I think life experience is a great term to use right now because that speaks to it's different to be sick when you're young. And I don't mean young like two, I mean young like 18 to 40, like where you're just supposed to be doing your thing, college, dating, house, job, career. That's where you start your life and that doesn't exist. So the need to have community and peer support, it's not about having everyone say, wow, I have empathy. I'm sorry. It's about having people that said, I've been there. I've done that. Here's how I got through it. And here's how I can help you get through it. It's the pay it forward model that just, it didn't exist at all in any sense. So when I decided to step into the nonprofit space in 2006, I wanted it to be very different and community oriented and not all about cure. So what does it look like when someone joins the the foundation or participates with I mean, what kind of events happen, what things happen to create the community? Well, I, it's, it's kind of like a club you didn't want to join. But once you hear your family and it gives you a sense of, of, of purpose and sense and common thread and relationships and community and partnership and non-judgmental opportunities to feel like you are part of something and you didn't go through this for nothing. And it also gives you life hacks. How do you get through this when you're 22? How do you talk to your HR benefits manager when you have to take time off? How do you explain a gap in your resume because you're on chemo? How do you do all these things? That's the nature of what the stupid cancer ecosystem has curated. And it had live events. I mean, I don't work there anymore. It has live events. And there was an annual Congress. And we had a podcast before the word podcast existed that I hosted for 14 years. And it really became a radio show shock jock platform that called out all sorts of crap in healthcare and gave dignity and equity and, and voice to an entirely new generation of cancer patients. Yeah, how much did you have to involve the families of the people with the conditions versus just the people themselves? Oh, it was a family affair. I mean, obviously, we were there specifically for young adults affected by cancer and a lot of people who were young adults that had cancer as children who happen to now be thankfully alive, but with consequences of being cured when they were three. And then, you know, our parents came in because we're their kids and it it became a wonderful family ecosystem because stupid cancer might've been only about being sick when you're younger as a young adult, but everyone finds relevancy with the value it gives to that community. So in your bio, you talk about changing the conversation on cancer, uh, it being less polite, I guess, more just directed to the point. But I mean, outside of your organization, what is the conversation for someone that, you know, has cancer and they're young? Is it just like, there's no help besides go to the doctor? Um, so you're providing a service that's just not there? Or are you providing it in a different way from how it's done in other organizations or traditionally? Well, well there, there's two parts to every condition. One is the medical, clinical, academic part, and one is your life and your lifestyle. 
and your cultural influences and how you live your life with this disease and ideally beyond. Stupid Cancer and what I stand for even today with my podcast and my new media company, Off Script Media, talks about the way that you live your life when shit happens in cancer or rare disease for that matter. We're not here to tell you what drugs to take or what doctor to go see. We're here to help you understand that this is how you define your life and you are entitled to quality and dignity through the face of this nonsense that you didn't ask for. What's missing in terms of the white space we're filling are unfiltered and raw, authentic conversations and explainers about what the hell is actually going on to help you get through this. And that's not a slant at the industry, which is doctors and researchers and pharma companies and whatever. And they're talking medical and academic and whatnot. And that's fine. That's their job. But there's no layperson language in any disease state that's, that comes from the top down, that comes from industry. We need, academic, we need non-academic citizens and advocates to be the ones that keep us in mind, that have our backs and make sure that things happen that we don't need to be experts for. So what have you seen some of the most important resources for people that you know, are afflicted with cancer? Uh, I mean, what was surprising to you? I'm sure you had this model in mind. You thought, all right. I needed this. I needed that when I was going through it. Were there any surprises or, you know, if not, what are the things that people really need the most in terms think, of support? I think without getting wonky, I think it's important to recognize that healthcare is a supply only economy. No one wants to get sick. No one asks to get sick. No one can't wait to be sick. So the gap that happens is when you join the economy and you're there without having any research. It's not like you're buying a fridge. You could figure out what fridge to buy. Then you go buy your fridge. No one expects to get cancer and pre-research is what to do when they get sick. So you're at the dependency of a system that's, that's supply only. And what's missing is helping people navigate that store that you got found into. There's no greeter. There's no aisles. There's no directory. There's no mall. There's no tell you where the stores are when you enter the cancer care market or the lupus care market or the type one diabetes market, illness has no demand. So what's missing is what I said before is that no one's got your back. You're at the mercy of the industry and you need to depend on people like you to help you get through it as much as you need to depend on the doctor. So the doctors and the the insurance companies and, and that's all well and good and that's complicated enough. But if you're able to connect with somebody that's just like you, that speaks your language, that's been there and done that, that can make your life a whole lot better. But that person isn't going to talk jargon and talk insurance and talk pharmaceutical to you. That's going to person going to talk person to you. So what's an example of a conversation that maybe you've had many, many times with someone that, you know, is in this situation and that you feel like really helped them or opened their eyes or made them feel better. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. One particular issue that's going to resonate with lots of your listeners is the issue of family planning and fertility. Now, why do I say fertility and cancer? Well, most people that get cancer are in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. And the last thing that they even have to worry about is fertility. You're done with life, grandma, grandpa, whatever. But when you're sick in your teens, 20s, and 30s, chemotherapy, radiation, immunotherapy, surgery can make you infertile. Right. So that's not something that would be top of mind to someone who isn't a cancer person. And that's fine. But what matters most is you have a right to be a mom or a dad one day. That's your right. You're American. You're right. Whatever. But having a treatment can destroy your eggs, destroy your sperm. You have no uterus anymore. Testicular cancer. You can, everything below the belt that's cancer can ruin your ability 
to be mom or dad. So one of the more effective conversations that I love to have and that I continue to have is what do I do to preserve my fertility? How do I talk to my doctor about this? Can I even afford to do this? What do my insurance companies cover? Does my job cover embryo harvesting or oocyte preservation? That's an ongoing conversation that I'm still very actively involved with that's never going to go away. If cancer can cause infertility, you have the right to know what your choices are to preserve your right to be a mom or a dad one day. So that's one really strong example of why advocating for cancer as a younger person matters differently than advocating for cancer with someone that's retired in Florida. Yeah, that's true. I didn't, um, are, there, are there good options for people or is it pretty difficult to maintain your ability to have children? It's a very under-discussed, underfunded, and under-recognized need in industry that fertility should be a right, fertility should be covered, for, there should be Miranda rights of fertility risk disclosure before you start your chemotherapy or surgery. And that's not happening. And even though I'm out of the nonprofit business, it's still a huge flag that I put on the ground every day that the right to parenthood through cancer should be a, a, a federal mandate. Well, what do doctors do right now? Do they address it? Do they, I mean, do they run from the conversation? What happens? Well, I think if you want to, really want to get granular, uh, there's no billing code. So if there's no billing code, there's no point in talking about it because they don't get reimbursed for helping you. And that's the sad part of our economy and our health system is that unless there's a billing code, unless it's incentivized, no one cares. So it doesn't happen. Nine out of 10 times, that conversation doesn't happen unless someone comes to the table already aware that is this going to affect my ability to be a mom or a dad. And if you're diagnosed at 19, parenthood is the last thing on your mind. You just want to be cured. So, and if you're nine, you know, you, they can harvest your oocytes at nine before puberty and freeze them and 20 years later be a mom, but that's not going to happen. So until there's a mandate, until there's a billing code, until it's covered by insurance writ large or Medicare, you know, it's an uphill battle. And it's one that I'm going to, it's a hill I, I'm happy to die on because we, we need to make sure that cancer should not be the, uh, the death knell for parenthood. Is, is there any stigma in, you know, it'd be horrible, but I mean, I don't know. Is there any thought mm -hmm by the medical community or by the poor people themselves who have cancer that they shouldn't have chosen because they may have children that have the same condition they have, et cetera. Yeah, that's a narrative, but that's their choice if they don't want to have children. But if you are not aware that entering into a contract with a doctor for chemotherapy, radiation, immunotherapy, surgery imposes a risk to your future biological parenthood abilities, you should be told that then it's your decision whether you want to have kids after you're sick or not. You know, cancer can be genetic, but only 7% of cancers are genetic. And only 1% of those 7% pass down genes to their kids. So you're looking at data now around what is your risk about this. I had, I had cancer. My wife's brother died from cancer. We decided to have kids. Thankfully, they're healthy. They're happy. They're 10, knock wood. But that was our choice. But neither of us knew in advance, you know, whether we'd be mom or dad one day. So is it... Um... Yeah, I mean, people are probably not even aware that if they sign up for a chemo or whatever it is, that uh, they may never be able to have children from that point. Yeah, it's it's legitimate. There are it's a legitimacy that most of the time, young adults facing cancer are not made aware of fertility risk before they consent to their treatment. That's terrible. Yes, it is. That's why there's advocacy. <laughs> Do you have? I mean, even when they're told, do a lot of people say, ooh, okay, yeah, that's, that's really important. Or do they say, well, I, I don't know. I, 
do they just not want to think about it? Like, what are people's reaction if they're young? There's no one answer to that question because everything's highly individualized and there are 80,000 cancers every year in the fertility space. I mean, I mean, there's 80,000 diagnoses a year for people who are in their fertile years and it only happens maybe one out of 10 times. You know, yeah, sure, it could be like, you know, you're dying, you need to do this, we'll worry about that later, okay? Or there's, you know, I, I have one anecdote that's gonna really grind your gears, which is of a friend who already had a kid that got breast cancer. And when she brought up the conversation to the doctor, he said, well, you already got one, right? Isn't that terrible? That's, that's just not acceptable to be told. Yeah, but you already got one, right? So it, it's gonna be contingent on the level of education the patient has or the caregiver has, the spouse has. With the level of education the doctor has, the hospital has, the clinic has, the health system, with whatever, what, what, if insurance is gonna cover it or not, and how much time you have between banking your sperm, harvesting eggs, freezing embryos and starting a treatment. There's no one answer. Hmm. Well, that's a really cool thing that you're doing, especially in, the, in that area. I didn't realize. <laughs> it's crazy. I mean, that was the whole point of getting into the nonprofit space um, back in 2006, is that this is a conversation only relevant to cancer patients in their fertile years. And up until recently, no one cared about cancer patients under 40 because 96% of cancer patients are over the age of 75. So there was a need 15, 16, 17 years ago to start a movement about the next generation of cancer patients. And that is what has been accomplished. That is what is still is ongoing now that I've stepped down from that company. And it's part of my legacy and I'm proud of it. So has the conversation been impactful to the point where fertility is discussed a lot or is it still at the same place where it's rarely discussed? I'd like to be able to say on the air that is better than it was, but that doesn't really put it, you have to move the goalposts a lot closer to say that there's been any major difference. So what, what, what's from here? What's the, uh, you know, you've been doing this for a while. What, what's needed at this point to make a difference? I, I've taken a step away from that specific area of advocacy to start my media company, which is more focused on general patient advocacy, consumer health, and how do we not try to fix the whole system, but where are the gaps that are missing? And when you get sick, what do you need to know about? And why are things so expensive? And if you live in this zip code or your skin is a different color, you die more, you, you suffer more, it costs the system more. Fertility is just one aspect of that. I, I would almost argue that infertility from cancer is a good problem to have because unlike 25 years ago where you just kind of died, now you're alive to have this issue, which is a good issue to have. I'd rather be infertile and alive and deal with what I would do about adoption, surrogacy, or living without children than be dead and not even know about that. So there are significant efforts still afoot working on fertility rights. And again, fertility, infertility induced from cancer and infertility just natural infertility are kind of the same thing. One's induced, one you're born with, but you should still have the right to be a biological mom or a dad one. So what's the, um, what's your goal right now? I'm, I'm not clear on what you've shifted to. Like what's your, the main focus of your work at this moment? Well, I stepped down as CEO of Stupid Cancer 18 months ago when I launched a brand new media company called Offscript. And we're an audio broadcast network focused on consumer health and patient advocacy. We're a basically Spotify or Gimlet for healthcare. And we produce content. We have original content. We curate content. Uh, we're building a large audience in a, in, a, in a white space where there's no voice and taking 
the fact that most healthcare is a website or videos, there, there's no audio repository of peer-to-peer and recommendations. And again, it's the, it's the unfilteredness of a voice like mine and other people like mine that are talent in telling a better story and convening people in schoolhouse rocking complex information. And that's the basis behind my company. So what, what needs to be out there in the educational space in terms of health? I know there's probably a ton, but in your opinion, like what are the most important topics or things that need to start happening? Well, the top line for me, at least, is making things understandable. Healthcare is narratives are driven by medicine and academia and, and highfalutin folks, right? Nothing speaks the high school language of an uneducated American who just needs to know what's happening in a different language. Nothing in healthcare trickles down, and I say schoolhouse rock again, to the average citizen. A complex world, no one walks into it understanding what they're talking about. And we're not asking doctors to dumb themselves down. We have to create a way that the information people need to get when they're in a system they didn't want to be in there in the first place is made available to them in their language and on their terms so they can make the best decisions for them and no one else. That's the top line issue. It's not about any one thing. They're all too complicated and they're all too academic for the average American. What do you think is like a really effective way? Is podcasts a great media for you know health info or physical journals? Like what, what have you seen works really well? The biggest trends recently have been understanding that peer-to-peer, like someone like you, Alcoholics Anonymous or whatever, like support groups online or offline, are contributing to better decisions. And that's not people learning about what drugs to take. They're turning how to make their lives a little less miserable when bad things happen in cancer or rare disease. Good examples are, you know, what, what medicines to take or what uh, car service you can use or what nanny service understands I have to go to chemotherapy or how do you talk to your insurance company about this? The life hacks, and that's a really important term to use to apply these days, life hacks through communities of people like you are just as relevant as the medical and academic and clinical stuff that happens to you. So starting with the fact that the grassroots is really helping people make better decisions, that demonstrates that it's not about another website or another video series or another Zoom meeting, where are people consuming health information when bad things happen? And they're getting it more from their people, their communities and groups like, like even Facebook does groups right sometimes. And there are, I did a show because <clears throat> I have my own podcast called Out of Patients, did a show with a young couple who had had a child born with a very rare autistic disorder. And they were able to find support in a random Facebook group with eight people in it. And that's like three other couples in the world that have these, the kid with this disease is like 10 cases a year. And what they needed was to find people like them to help them understand, oh, we use this telehealth thing because we don't want to pack up our kid up and schlep him to the hospital all the time. Something as simple as that is a great example of how we find support from people like us, while we still need to be dependent on the doctors to give us the medicines and the protocol. Hmm. So- what about for people that have a condition that are listening to this podcast? What are some resources for them? Where can they go to find out more and get you know, these life hacks and this help and these communities that you're talking about? I always recommend a community called The Mighty, M-I-G-H-T-Y. The Mighty was founded by my friend Mike Parath, who um, has a child with a rare artistic disorder. I wasn't referring to him in the other anecdote. And he's a journalist by trade, worked for AOL. 
And he started this small group, which became a huge group, which is now a 4 million person app that's free to find your tribe. And it's non-threatening, it's self-policing. You find the community you want to talk to. And I recommend to everybody, check out The Mighty and find out where your people are to talk to people like. They don't prescribe medications. They don't tell you what to take. They're not selling you snake oil. It's a wonderful ecosystem for people dealing with a chronic disease, a rare disease, a rare illness, a child with, with an issue, or themselves. Welcome to the Stupid Cancer Club. The Mighty is my number one place to recommend. Talkspace would be second. Okay, so the Mighty and Talkspace, like the Mighty is an app that you download, or how would you? How do you first find it? Just Google it, or yeah, themighty.com or the Mighty on iOS for Android. Very cool. Okay, so if you have a particular condition, chances are you may be able to find a community of people with that same condition, or that they have a child or someone they know has that condition. Yeah, this is tribalism done right. Finding your community of people who've been there and done that is the most important thing you could possibly ever do, and today it's better than ever. Yeah, that's great. I mean, doctor recommendations like, you know, oh, I live in Georgia and I need a doctor for, you know, breast cancer that uh, cares about nutrition. Where do I find one? Those kinds of recommendations may be possible in these communities, right? Absolutely, yes. Finding your tribe, finding your community. These are things that just didn't exist. Like when I started Stupid Cancer, none of this existed. There were no communities to find. And now today in 2020, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of communities to find with people just like you. And that's the single most important thing I recommend people try to try to find. But now there are platforms like Talkspace and The Mighty that you can find those people and learn from them. Yeah, that's fantastic. Okay. Well, very good, Matt. Um, is there anything else that you want people to take from this conversation we haven't talked about? I, I, I always quote Billy Joel, and Billy Joel just says, don't take any shit from anyone. But what I mean by that authentically is you can't just say, be your own advocate. I know a lot of these groups say, oh, you have to stand up for yourself and be your own. A lot of people just don't have that, that internal moxie, that chuspa, that gumption to do that. But being vulnerable enough to realize that you need help, the doctor, the system, the insurance, yes, they're there and you have to go through that because that's how you get your medicine, your prescriptions, your diagnoses. But community matters more today than ever before with regard to how do you endure and get through what you're going through. So whether or not you are a, a predisposed advocate for yourself or what you want, having the ability to surround yourself somehow with people like you is the, is the lowest hanging fruit that I encourage people to consider. And then you find people who can lift you up because they've been there and done that. Excellent. Okay. Matt, any other links or recommendations for people or the Mighty and Talkspace are the top two? Yeah, and please check out my podcast at outofpatience.com. That's patients like hospital patients, not be patient. And or search for, I'm the only Matthew Zachary that podcasts, so it's pretty, just search your favorite podcast app for Matthew Zachary. All right, that's great. Matt, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Richard. Good luck. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.